I think our pastor did a super job of lining up our preaching schedule while he was gone. We've had former pastors and associates back to preach. We've had a former district superintendent. Uh, pastor Nathan uh, Chrisman, our student minister, has done a super job the last three weeks with his series. And I am privileged to preach to you today. If you spend much time around the Church of the Nazarene, if you listen to enough sermons, if you sit in enough Sunday school classes, Bible studies, or small groups, if you attend the pastor's information and membership class, you're bound at some point to hear the words sanctify or sanctification. Now, my father was a newspaper reporter when he was called to preach. I was an infant at the time, and by the time he got his work accomplished and was able to pastor a church. I was a toddler, and uh, he pastored a very small Nazarene church in West Virginia. He was raised in a family that was Presbyterian pretty much in name only because church membership was expected of genteel folks back in the 1930s and 40s. My mother grew up going to Sunday school at a little Nazarene church, and she influenced my dad to attend services with her while they were dating. In fact, I'm pretty sure she said, if you want to date me, you'll go to church with me. That's still good advice for young people that are dating. My dad was one to the Lord in part because a godly lady, much older than him and the young adults that were in that class, a godly lady taught the Sunday school lesson with tears in her eyes. I'll never forget hearing my dad describe that. It impressed him so much to see in someone a deeper commitment and a walk with Jesus that he had never experienced, but he was hungry to experience for himself. So being raised in the Church of the Nazarene myself, I figured up that between the ages of 5 and 18, I probably heard 2,000 or more sermons. Sunday church services, Sunday morning, Sunday night, revival meetings sometimes lasted 10 to 14 days, uh, camp meetings that were two weeks, zone rallies. Anybody remember what a zone rally was? Youth camp services, missionary services. Now, granted, I didn't listen intently to every sermon I heard between the ages of 5 and 18. And many times I was too young or spiritually immature to even understand all that was being said or to accept it for myself. But I grew up with a lot of confusion about this work of God that was emphasized by my denomination, this work of sanctification. I knew I needed it. I knew I wanted it, and I knew God could do it, but I was, just wasn't sure about the way to experience it and live it out in my daily life. But I've learned a lot since then, and I want to share that with you this morning. The truth is, every Christian denomination or Christian church it could be a non-denominational or independent church. But any church that claims the name of Christ and bases their theology on the Bible, the Word of God, every Christian denomination and church believes in sanctification. Now, you might say, Pastor Mike, I don't know about that. I attended a church for a long time, and they never talked about being sanctified or sanctification. Well, I, that doesn't matter. The truth is... If you're a Christian denomination based on the Word of God, you have to believe in sanctification because it's a biblical concept. It, uh, it, has, it has to be included 
in your theology or articles of faith or your doctrine because it is a biblical concept and a Christian necessity. Look at this passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing, greatest missionary the church has ever known. He went around in his missionary travels. He would go to different cities or towns and preach the gospel. People got saved. People accepted the, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, and they formed churches. And then Paul would move on and leave that church behind with local leadership to keep preaching the gospel and winning more people to Christ so the church would grow. And Paul would write letters back to those churches he'd started. So he writes to the church in Thessalonica. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to sinners. He's not just hoping that someone will pick up this letter or this book he wrote and read it for themselves like, like we can do today. You know, we could print out the, the, a passage of just 1 Thessalonians and say, okay, here's Paul's letter to us. Let's pass it out to people. Paul was writing to Christians, and here's what he said. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are now living. Anybody here want to please God? Let me see your hands. You want to please God? I would hope that would be 100%. Now, if you haven't fully committed to Christ, I still think you have a desire in your heart that God would be pleased with you. You don't want to make God mad, do you? <laughs> that would be pretty stupid. In fact, I heard the other day someone was saying, why would, why would a loving God send anybody to hell? You ever heard that before? And you know the answer I heard for that? Why would a person choose hell over a loving God? Yeah. <laughs> so forget God sending anybody to hell. He doesn't send us anyway. We choose. But why would anyone choose hell over a living God? So Paul says, I'm proud of you guys here in Thessalonica. You're pleasing God. That's good. Now I ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Don't stop. Don't think you've arrived. Don't settle. Keep pleasing God. Continue to please God. Find more ways to please God. Keep up the good work. And then he says, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. This is not my word. My instructions are not from me. They're from the authority of God's of, of Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. See, how could any Christian denomination ignore that? It is God's People are always saying, boy, if God would just let me know his will, I'd do it. I wonder what God's will is for my life. You need to seek God's will and always do God's will. Well, there it is in black and white. At least one of the things God has for you is this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid immortality. Next, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, me, but he's rejecting God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You can't ignore it. It's right there. 
And he goes on, uh, or he doesn't go on there, but later we'll come back to Paul. It is God's will that we be sanctified. Now, like many things that cause some disagreement in interpretation, the problem here is that while every Christian denomination believes in sanctification, many disagree about how and when a person can be sanctified. Many believe that sanctification is a lifelong spiritual growth process. And it is, to a degree. From the time we receive Christ as our Savior, from the time we're born again, saved, converted, whatever you want to call it, from the time we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and He begins the growth process in us. As we yield to Him, as we submit to Him, as we obey Him, we begin to grow in this spiritual process. That is the process of sanctification. Other groups, other churches believe that one cannot be sanctified in this life because as long as we have a human body that is flawed and imperfect and subject to sin, we can never truly be sanctified. Some believe that sanctification only happens at the same moment as glorification when we receive our new bodies and we're conformed to the image of Christ in heaven. So even though sanctification is a biblical concept and Christian churches have to believe in it, the problem is when and how can we receive it or experience it? Well, the Church of the Nazarene and other holiness denominations in the Wesleyan tradition believe that one can be sanctified in this life so that we can fully experience the grace of God and live out a life of obedience and holiness. Now, I don't want to get too bogged down here, and this probably seems out of character for Pastor Mike, because usually I'm a lot funnier or goofier or loosey-goosey or something than this. And, and I've been concerned about preaching such a heavy message, but I believe the message needs to be heard. I don't want to get bogged down here, but let me show you in the manual of the Church of the Nazarene what our church says in Article Faith number 10. We believe that sanctification is the work of God which transforms believers into the likeness of Christ. A minute ago I asked how many of you want to please God. I think I could also ask how many of you want to be like Jesus? See, I remember an old song that I sang as a kid and as a young adult that said, I have one deep supreme desire. What is it? That I might be like Jesus. That's my desire. That's my goal, to be like Him. And the Church of the Nazarene believes that sanctification is the work that transforms us into the likeness of Christ. It is wrought or worked. It happens by God's grace through the Holy Spirit in initial sanctification, which goes by a lot of different words. Regeneration is the same as being born again or justified or converted receiving Christ as your personal Savior. That's regeneration. So it begins with initial sanctification when the Holy Spirit first comes into our lives. It continues into entire sanctification and then the continued perfecting work of the Holy Spirit, culminating in glorification. In glorification, we are fully conformed to the image of the Son. Like the Bible says, we will know Him even as we are known. We believe that entire sanctification is that act of God subsequent to regeneration. What's that mean? After we're born again, after you become a Christian, entire sanctification is for believers so that they can be made free from original sin. What's original sin? It's the sin we inherited because of the fall of Adam and Eve. 
We're all born with original sin. We like to say, oh, no, people are inherently good. People want to do the right thing. That may be, but the Bible tells us that we're born with a carnal nature. We're born with inbred sin. It's been passed down to us, original sin. The best example I can give you is the first two words any of my kids ever said. No and mine. Right? Well, they may have said mama or dada in there somewhere. But no and mine. To me, that, that confirms that we're born with a sinful nature. That it's all about me. The center of every sin is I. S-I-N. Because I want my way. I want what I don't have. I want what you've got. I don't want to have to suffer like that. I don't want to have to defend myself. I, I, I. See? And so, we can be made free from original sin. We believe the Holy Spirit can do that. And we are brought into a state of entire devotion to God and the holy obedience of love made perfect. It is wrought... Entire sanctification is worked or it happens in our lives by the baptism with or the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And it comprehends, it includes in one experience, the cleansing of the heart from sin and the abiding, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, empowering the believer for life and service. Entire sanctification is provided by the blood of Jesus. It is wrought instantaneously by grace through faith preceded by entire consecration. You know what that means? I have to do something if I want to be sanctified. I have to consecrate myself. I have to give my all. I have to be a living sacrifice, holy and devoted to Him. In the Old Testament, the priests would bring the sacrificial animal into the holy holies and consecrate it to God, and then they would sacrifice it. In the same way, we bring ourselves to God and consecrate ourselves to Him. And He does the work of sanctification in us. So it's preceded by our consecration. And to this work and state of grace, the Holy Spirit bears witness. The Holy Spirit assures us that all is well, that we belong to Him, that there's nothing hindering our relationship with God. He bears witness to us. This experience is also known by various terms representing its different phases, such as Christian perfection, perfect love, heart purity, the baptism with the Holy Spirit or the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the blessing, and Christian holiness. And I've heard some old-timers say the second blessing or the... the uh, the second work of grace. But this is God's will for us. There's one more thing we need to know, though. On the next slide. We believe that there is a marked distinction between a pure heart and a mature character. The former, a pure heart, is obtained in an instant when God does His work, the result of entire sanctification, God doing that work within us. The latter, the mature character, is the result of growth in grace. We believe that the grace of entire sanctification includes the divine impulse to grow in grace as a Christ-like disciple. When you come to God after you're a Christian and you consecrate yourself fully to Him and you ask Him to cleanse your heart from sin and fill you with His Spirit, you are made pure in an instant, but you are not automatically mature. There's a process. 
We have to continually yield ourselves to Him. We have to continue to obey Him in every area of our lives. We have to seek Him with all of our heart and allow His Holy Spirit to work in us the work that He wants to accomplish. Now, this Revive Ohio thing is coming up, Revive Green County at the end of April. And I love when churches of different denominations, cultures, races, languages, I love it when Christians get together. For me, it's practicing for heaven. You know, there are going to be other people there besides us. You know that, right? Now, if, if you want to find me while people are dancing around the throne, I'll be over on the edge because I never learned to dance. I wasn't allowed to dance for a long time. But anyway, they'll be dancing around the throne celebrating. But there's going to be people from all walks of life there. And I love it when Christians get together for a unified or concerted effort. But one thing that disturbs me when I get together with other Christians in some of those circumstances is when I hear people pray, Lord, forgive us for our many sins. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not against praying for, for forgiveness of sins. But that language I, I have a little problem with, and I'll tell you why. Another one is people who say, well, every night before I go to bed, I say, Lord, if I've sinned today, please forgive me. See, I have trouble with that language too. Because in my definition of sin and my theology of salvation, I believe that when I sin, I will know it. It won't be an accident. I don't have to say, Lord, if I sin. That's like when, I, when I've offended you and I come up to you and say, if I did anything to hurt your feelings. And you know, and I know, that I hurt your feelings. But I'm kind of pawning it off like, if I did anything, please forgive me. That's not a sincere testimony or a apology. And in the same way, Lord, forgive me for my many sins. If I sin today, please forgive me. We believe that the Holy Spirit is faithful. He will convict us of our sins. When we step out of line, he's there to say, that wasn't pleasing to God. That wasn't right for a Christian to do. And then we have a choice. Do I obey him and make that right? Do I say, God, please forgive me? And if I have offended someone, do I make it right with them in the old-fashioned word called restitution? Or do I say, no, I'm, I didn't, that, that's just me. I, that's natural. I, I don't have any control over that. That's just the way I am. I'm not, no, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness for that. I didn't mean to. Can I have a do-over? Well, the truth is God gives us lots of do-overs, but we have to confess and do, do better the next time. And some of you are going to think this is impossible or you think I'm bragging or conceited. But there are a lot of nights I can lay my head on the pillow and reflect on my day and say, as far as I know, I did not sin today. I, I did not disappoint Jesus. I did not step out of line. I did not disobey him. And you say, Pastor Mike, are you perfect? No way. But... There are actually some days when I don't cuss at a driver who cuts me off. Isn't that good? There are some days when I don't shoplift when I'm walking through Walmart. There are some days when I haven't murdered anybody. There are some days when I'm content with what I have and I don't covet and I'm not greedy. There are some days when lustful thoughts come into my mind and I say, Lord, take that thought captive. I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm going to dwell on you. There are some days 
when that happens. And I can honestly lay my head on the pillow at night and say, Lord, I did pretty good today. Thank you that your power was at work in me and helped me to live a life pleasing to you. There are other nights when I say, well, I thought about that situation too long. Or I, I, I wasn't happy with the $900,000 I have. I wanted a million, right? Or that person made me feel insignificant, so I lashed out at them. Or I told a lie about them. There are some days I have to face the fact that maybe I did a couple of things that were out of line for a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit. But I want to take care of that. I don't put it off. I don't say, well, I'll get around to that later. Lord, give me three or four weeks and I'll, I'll, I'll discuss this with you. No, I want to take care of it immediately. And we can have power over sin. We can have victory over sin. You say, Pastor Mike, that sounds like some kind of fantasy. How can you have victory over sin? Well, let, let me give you one more example. It's not on the screen, but I think it's a verse that many of you will recognize. You know, in 1 John, John the Beloved, the disciple that Jesus loved, Peter, James, and John, that John, he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. So he wrote five books of the New Testament. In 1 John, he says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's a promise that we're given. And then, that's in the first chapter. At the beginning of the second chapter, the same writer, John, says this. I'm writing these things so that you will not sin. What? You mean if I read these things and put them into practice, I could live a life where I do not sin? That's what John said. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's what he wrote. I'm writing these things so that you will not sin. Now, do you think God puts stuff in the Bible just to frustrate us so he can sit back like some kind of cosmic godfather and say, <laughs> watch him try to do that. Watch him try to avoid that. <laughs> it's funny. Those little humans scurrying around there trying to keep my laws. That's not the God we love and serve. God wants to help us in every area of our lives. And he inspired John to say, I'm writing these things so that you will not sin. You mean I can not sin? Yes. That's good news, folks. We don't have to sin. We don't have to sin every day in word, thought, and deed. We may fall short. We may disappoint. We may mess up. But the Holy Spirit is faithful to say, take care of that. Get that right. Make sure you don't do that again. But it is possible not to sin. And then John puts in a conjunction that gives us comfort. He says, but if any man does sin, and we go, <laughs> because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He said, I write these things so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ, the righteous, an advocate, a mediator, a go-between, an attorney who stands up for us, one who takes our place. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who pleads our case before the Father. See, Jesus was human. He knows the temptations. He knows the struggles. He knows what it's like to live human life. And he had victory over sin. And he pleads our case 
to the Father. He knows what kind of stress we're under. He knows what kind of temptations we face. And he pleads our case to the Father. I'm so glad for that today. So it seems according to the doctrine of the church of the Nazarene that we can be saved, born again, converted, accept Christ, whatever you want to call it. And we can be sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit, cleansed from the carnal or sinful nature, and crucified with Christ. For when we're crucified with Christ, we're dead to sin and we're alive to Christ. This happens in a second work of grace called entire sanctification. And all along the way, from the time we first turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit is nurturing us, teaching us, guiding us, empowering us to live a holy life so that we're walking in the light as He is in the light. It's a life of surrender, a life of obedience, a life of Christ-likeness. In this season leading up to Easter, this time when we reflect on the cross of Calvary and the price that was paid for our sin, when we recognize the amazing love of God that would move him to sacrifice his only son and the amazing submission of Jesus to lay down his life for us, we need to recognize that Jesus did not just die to forgive our sins. He didn't just die so our sins could forgive him be forgiven. He died to give us full salvation. That includes a life of freedom, perfect love, and victory. Look at this passage from Hebrews that confirms this. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies of those sacrificial animals are burned outside the camp. Remember they They poured the blood out of the animal or took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar, and that was the sacrifice. But they they burned the the, uh, bodies of those animals outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. One version says to sanctify the people by his own blood. He didn't just die to save us, he died to sanctify us as well. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for that city that is to come. If we want to see that city one day, we've got to walk in the light that he gives us. The apostle Paul prayed this prayer to the Thessalonians. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And then Jesus himself prayed for us this prayer. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Our servers are coming to the table to prepare the gifts of communion. Our altars are going to be open for prayer, commitment, and personal reflection. If you've never confessed your sins and invited Jesus into your life as Lord and Savior, I appeal to you today, do it. It will be the best decision you've ever made. Confess your sins, ask for His forgiveness, and receive Him as your Savior. If you are a Christian, you know your sins are forgiven, 
and you're daily walking with the Lord, go on into a deeper walk with Jesus. Surrender all to Him. Experience the work of sanctification in your life. He will fill you with His Holy Spirit and give you the power to live a holy life as you yield yourself to Him. For the past three weeks, Pastor Nathan so capably taught us about the war in which we are involved as Christians. The war within is won when we surrender. I know that sounds opposite. To win a war, you have to surrender. Yes, we surrender everything to God and experience the spiritual victory He has for us in sanctifying power. This is my prayer for you, for all of us. But more importantly, it's the prayer of Jesus for all of us. Heavenly Father, as we come forward to receive the gifts of communion in this means of grace, we can use that as a time to draw closer to you. We also have the kneeling benches called altars, the place of prayer, where we can confess our sins, where we can draw nearer to you, where we can consecrate ourselves, where we can receive the infilling of your Holy Spirit. Help us today to honor you by being obedient. That's how we really prove our love for God is by obeying you. So if you're speaking to us today, Lord, I pray that we'll all be motivated and moved to do what you're calling us to do and that people will leave here today with real spiritual victory because of an encounter with God, the Holy Spirit. Bless the gifts of communion, the bread and the unfermented wine, and may it nurture us spiritually. And may the time of prayer be a time where we can make commitments that will be long-lasting, even life-changing. So bless your people as we worship you in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.